Hello there, and welcome back to Are We Europe's podcast feed. This is producer Stefano Montali, and today we're sharing part two of our six-part series, Bridging the Atlantic, in partnership with the Bertelsmann Foundation North America. In this episode, host Nathan Christ and three guests discuss free speech online, internet platform regulation, and how the transatlantic partnership between Europe and North America plays into it all. Please enjoy episode two of Bridging the Atlantic. Hi, you're listening to Bridging the Atlantic, a podcast miniseries about the transatlantic relationship created by the Bertelsmann Foundation North America and RB Europe. I'm your host, Nate Christ. I'm a project manager at the Bertelsmann Stiftung in Berlin, working on Europe's economy and transatlantic relations. In this episode, I want to focus on a specific topic that has its roots in the deep digital integration between the United States and the European Union. And it is a topic that has been the source of a lot of disagreement between the two sides. That topic is internet platform regulation and free speech, or freedom of expression. This topic and the different ways in which the US and the EU approach it impacts us directly every day as we communicate on social media platforms that have come to dominate online discourse. So I wanted to talk to experts about different transatlantic approaches to online platform regulation, since there is disagreement in Washington and Brussels on how to deal with these huge tech companies and their influence on how we communicate and their use of our data. But of course, there is also transatlantic agreement. And in many ways, this episode will show how this topic is a case study in how the United States and its EU partners can move past disagreements to land at compatible solutions, seeing eye to eye on a course of action despite approaching it from different perspectives. Jana Gut, a policy advisor in the European Parliament working for a member of the Green Party, sums this up nicely from her own experience. When I talk to colleagues in the US working on these issues, I don't think we're that far apart. When the reform in the EU on the e-commerce directive and now with the DSA started out, of course, it was everyone was really nervous because no one knew what would be proposed by the Commission. It could have happened that, of course, something would have been proposed where our US colleagues would say, well, this is just a, a no-go from like a First Amendment perspective or so. But the way that um, the last drafted now, for example, I would not see any issues in regards to the First Amendment. I also spoke to Jeff Jarvis, a professor at the City University of New York, about his experience as an American on the transatlantic high-level working group on content moderation online and freedom of expression. Here he is about his apprehension about meeting his European counterparts to discuss online platforms. That task force was put together by Susan Ness, a former federal communications commissioner in the U.S., and when she asked me to do it, I frankly dreaded it because I feared that I'd be in a room filled with people who just want to regulate the internet and blame our problems and uh, that I'd be the unpopular guy in the room. That's not the way it turned out at all. Susan did a spectacular job of bringing in researchers to ask first, what do we know and don't know about the impact of the net? That's the first value we came toward was to be evidence-based. And finally, Julian Jarosch, a project director focusing on platform regulation and disinformation at the Stiftung Neue Verantwortung in Berlin, argues that disagreements over free speech distract from the larger issue of corporate accountability, where there is greater transatlantic consensus. I'm not sure if I want to say overemphasis on, on values or oversimplification of values. I think maybe it's a mix of both. 
but I think always reverting back to the to the freedom of speech issue or freedom of expression issue is maybe also to the benefit of the companies because then they can say, oh, look, you know, these two big regions, the US and Europe, they, they can't even decide where they agree on, on freedom of expression. And it's also complex and also difficult. Let us handle that and like leave the rules to us. I think that plays into the hand, whereas, of course, it's a human rights issue. Of course, there will be normative value-based decisions to be made. But crucially, it's a corporate accountability. It's a corporate transparency issue. It's a consumer protection issue that in most other industries, there are guidelines of what a company should have in place to protect users, to protect society from potential negative effects of running their business. Why don't we have that for platforms? When it comes to platform regulation, the two big pieces of legislation right now are, in the US, Section 230 of the US Communications Decency Act, and in Europe, the European Union's upcoming Digital Services Act. To recap, America's Section 230 states that online platforms are not liable for content posted on their sites by users. However, it also enables them to moderate content, though it doesn't require it. This is pretty much the relevant baseline for online content and the responsibilities of platforms, but many countries around the world have built on this already. Going above and beyond Section 230 and potentially setting a new standard for platform regulation is the EU's Digital Services Act, which covers a lot of ground beyond communication on online platforms. The approach that the EU took here is not to focus so much on individual pieces of content or like clear-cut obligations on what should be deleted and what should not be deleted, for example, but trying to look at the issues from a more meta perspective, you could say, and trying to see where we have systemic risks and how these should be tackled. It's introducing transparency obligations. It's introducing obligations to conduct risk assessments if you're a very large online platform and to subject yourself to independent audits, for example. But none of this, I think, would be perceived as outrageous demands from a U.S. perspective. Yeah, my name is uh, Jana Guth. I'm a policy advisor at the European Parliament, currently working for a Green MEP called Ms. Alexandra Gies. I think the EU took a very liberalistic approach, you could even say, one that is very compatible with our fundamental rights and freedom of expression and so on. I'm really curious and looking forward to what the U.S. will come up with and how what we're doing in the EU might, uh, might be perceived over there once we have a final text. Jana and her MEP, Alexandra Geza, have been watching the DSA closely, in particular because Geza is the Green Party shadow rapporteur for the act. So the DSA, I mean, first of all, it's an acronym for Digital Services Act, and sometimes it's described as the fundamental law of the internet, even though that's a bit misleading because it doesn't define the relationship between the state and the users, but between private individuals. But it is an overarching law re-regulating our entire online lives and how we use online platforms and what the obligation of these online platforms should be. It's a reform of an already existing law called the e-commerce directive, which is uh, similar than what you will find in section 230 if you're looking at the US side of things. And has many, many different aspects. It started out just trying to reform these uh, older laws, basically, where we have liability exemptions on the big platforms rooted in them. But it turned out to become a much broader law tackling all various kinds of issues. So everything from on a meta level, though, hate speech, disinformation, online advertising. We have some provisions on online forum platforms in there. We have provisions on 
deepfakes in there on hosting services in general. So it's a really, really broad and general law trying to improve our online lives, basically. And where are we in the in the process of that legislation? The legislative process in the EU is pretty unique in the way that we don't, uh, within the parliament, don't have clear-cut majorities. We have various political groups, and they, of course, have different sizes and therefore different political weight behind them. But uh, when we negotiate laws, everyone's sitting on the table and everyone's negotiating um, with each other. So that means that every political party gets to name one so-called shadow rapporteur, and that's the representative of that political group in the negotiation process. So uh, when we get a draft law from the commission in our respective committees, we then each appoint a shadow rapporteur, and the member that I'm working for is the shadow rapporteur for the Greens. We are having like a bunch of meetings where we then sit at the table together with all the other shadow rapporteurs and the so-called rapporteur, and that's the person leading the negotiations, and go through every bit of the text and negotiate it from, uh, from forth to back and try to find an agreement on everything. Currently, we are in the so-called trilogue negotiations, which is the phase in the legislative process where uh, we already have a voted final text from the European Parliament and a voted final text from the Council. And we have the draft law from the European Commission. And these are the three so-called co-legislators in the uh, EU legislative process. And uh, now the stage that we're in, where we have these three final texts, we sit together at a big round table and trying to find a compromises between these three institutions and uh, yeah, doing the final deals on everything. And we're hoping to be done with that uh, before the summer. And what changes has it undergone in this process? I assume that there was a series of amendments in the European Parliament. What are some things to look out for in that process that has been added or removed? So uh, we did have over 3,000 amendments in total that we had to work through in the European Parliament, which is an unusual high amount of amendments being brought forward by the political groups. And that also reflects the high interest and the high stakes that we had in regards to this law. Some of the biggest changes that were uh, proposed from the Parliament side concern the online advertising business as we know it. But from the Parliament's view, there are a lot of uh, risks associated with running targeted advertisements and uh, micro-profiling people based on information that we gather on them online. So the Parliament introduced uh, much stricter measures around online advertising. For one, um, introducing strong transparency requirements around it, but also ruling out that these micro-profiling practices can be run uh, in order to target children or minors with uh, targeted advertisements and also that sensitive data shouldn't be used to get to target ads. Another big change, I think, is that uh, there's an entire new article introduced around dark patterns. I think that would be of really high interest to to the broader public if it does if it does survive the trilogue because it might mean the end of cookie banners as we know them and that that would significantly improve our online lives I think. Yeah, you mentioned content moderation and and freedom of expression and this is a really sticky issue not least because the United States is more purist I guess in in the freedom of speech category than some European countries. You said that the approach that the DSA takes looks at the bigger picture, doesn't necessarily focus on individual pieces of content and deciding if they are illegal or not. How did we get there? Because it seems like the debate focused on social media companies need to set community standards 
for what can be said. And if those standards aren't met by their users, that content should be removed. And now you're saying we're looking at kind of a, a holistic approach. Did we get here as, as a result of practicality, people studying the issue more and finding out something bigger is needed? Or is it even with considerations of the transatlantic relationship in mind? Could we even go that far and say that if we want to reduce friction between the US and Europe on this issue, then we shouldn't focus on figuring out which content is illegal, because then that puts us at odds with perceptions of free speech. I think it's a mix of everything that you mentioned. If we take a step back and asking ourselves, how do we best guarantee freedom of expression, right? And freedom of expression to actually create an environment where people can actually make use of this right is not only about upholding as much content as we can or not preventing the deletion of as much content as we can, but it's to ensure that we're creating and protecting an environment where everyone can make actual use of this right. And with the situation that we have right now, with the flood of online hate that we're seeing, there are so many people that are being pushed out of these online spaces that are, or that are withdrawing from them more or less voluntarily because they just don't feel safe there anymore. One of the main factors that plays a role there is, uh, like we already mentioned, the fact that content nowadays is amplified. It's not only that uh, everything's ranked in a chronological order, like for example, if you open your Twitter timeline, you will see that the content is pre-sorted for you based on what the algorithm determines to be most relevant for you. And that is not only determined by what you might actually just find most interesting or what might be most inspiring to you, but that's also determined precisely by the consideration on what will make you stay online and engage as much as possible. Because uh, as we all know, the main business model online is online advertising. So in order to sell more ads and in order to sell them for a higher price, you need to stay online longer and you need to engage. If at the same time we want to ensure that uh, content moderation practices are preserving freedom of expression at the same time, because we are on the one side, we're skeptical of automated means being used to moderate uh, individual pieces of content because they're error prone. On the other side, if we look at um, the 10,000s of uh, humans doing content moderation right now and look at the toll that it takes on them to look at these like really horrible um, pieces of content, then we're kind of reaching the boundaries of what's possible if our standard is that we want to not deploy the most effective is the wrong word, but like if we just don't want to employ like an, uh, an upload filter, for example, that just takes down everything that just even seems to be problematic content, but want to try to ensure that uh, we safeguard freedom of expression, then just looking at the content itself will not be sufficient. So it's worthwhile to explore the other options uh, that we have in order to regulate the space. And that is looking at the amplification mechanisms and the underlying business model. We've spoken now about how the US and the EU might actually have more in common than at first glance when it comes to platform regulation. Where do you see the most commonalities? I was working in the US, when was it, like three years ago? I had lots of conversations with researchers in the space and we we're discussing the First Amendment and how it's applicable to advertising businesses, for example, and like companies running ads. And the prevailing opinion at that time seemed to be that they would be covered under First Amendment protections. Just like the fact that the ads itself were considered protected speech. 
And that basically ruled out any strict regulation in that regard or like banning certain advertising practices would have been really difficult from a constitutional point of view. But for example, that assessment really changed over the last couple of years. And now um, when we at the parliament first started talking about these issues and when we're running around with an idea of maybe even like banning the entire um, targeted advertising business and going back to contextual advertising for example it was perceived as a very radical idea and that has also changed both within the eu and within the us during the last yeah two to three years uh, you'd have to say and now I was really surprised that, for example, a couple of weeks ago, Hillary Clinton retweeted a petition calling for the FTC to ban EdTech as well under, I think it's Section 5, uh, they would put it under. The discussions are uh, ever evolving and even on subjects uh, where we seem to be pretty far apart just a couple of years ago, I think we're getting closer and closer together. I saw a report that said that uh, big tech companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft spent over $100 million lobbying in Brussels in 2020, which puts them ahead of big oil, big pharma, big finance. What does that mean for the DSA and, and, and platform regulation aspects within that? Does that worry you that regulations will be watered down or is it more of a sign that the EU is onto something? Both can be true at the same time. Of course, it's worrying, but at the same time, it shows you that you're onto something that might actually change something. Because if you were just uh, legislating on something that might look nice from the outside, but in the implementation itself wouldn't really change what people are doing, then they wouldn't be worried. But you could actually tell that they were very worried. Like Facebook, for example, ran a huge lobby campaign saying that uh, the online world as it is is good for SMEs and we need to keep it as, as it is because otherwise SMEs would die and run bankrupt and so on. Like that was all over the place for quite some time. And if you looked at, for example, I constantly had it in my Twitter feed. And if you looked at who the ads were actually targeting, it wasn't small businesses that they were targeting. It was policymakers that they were targeting. So it was quite clear that it was a lobby campaign. That's more or less like usual lobby business. And yes, it's worrying. And yes, you do see amendments that are really copy-pasted word by word from proposals that these companies will send over to you. But what's more worrying is that some of these very big players are more overarching into every every field there is. So for example, one of the biggest newspapers uh, that's reporting about EU policy issues is now also being co-funded by big tech. But at the end of the day, it's just a worrying development if in every field that you need in order to properly regulate and uh, every source of knowledge that you could gather is in the end funded by the exact same players that you do want to regulate. Was there a moment where you started to realize something was off with the, the online platforms with the internet? The way things were going posed a threat to the way we communicate with each other, the way companies are able to communicate with us through ads, the way politicians and parties are able to communicate with, with voters. Was there a moment you recall where you're like, this is not right, something has to change? So I'm a privacy lawyer by training, and I've been doing that for over 10 years. So I was always really interested in the like, privacy aspect of everything and very sensitive to these issues. At the beginning, it was more an understanding about the issues that's clear in theory. And if you think about what could potentially happen in the future if we just let things run, right? But I think where um, the issues that we're facing became crystal clear for, I guess, everyone 
was with the storm on the capital and all of the COVID disinformation that spread uh, over the last two years. Because there we really saw how the amplification of content and how the recommendation of certain content or certain groups or whatnot does directly influence not only our online lives and whether or not we have a nice Facebook feed or not, but it has an actual impact on our everyday lives, on our health, on our security. And um, I think that's that's really that was really a wake up moment for a lot of people to realize that there there's something we need to do about this, and it cannot be looking at a piece of content and determine whether it's the truth or not, and then take it down or not. It needs to be a systemic change. In the U.S., lawmakers are hesitant about stricter rules for online speech, reflecting a more liberal approach to tech companies, but also awareness about giving the government or private companies the means to decide if speech is legal or not. But there is evidence that public opinion on platform regulation in the U.S. is converging with that of Europe. A recent Pew study showed that while in 2020, only 47% of Americans thought the government should regulate tech companies more, in 2021, just a year later, 56% of Americans thought the governments should regulate more. Still, it will be an uphill climb as many are deeply skeptical about blaming the internet for everything and censoring speech online. In the United States, of course, we have a First Amendment that guarantees government will not interfere with speech. Uh, that doesn't exist in Europe, and I think that causes uh, the, the clearest distinction in the views of speech online. I'm Jeff Jarvis. I'm a professor at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. I think it's very important to say that we should go back long before the internet to Gutenberg and to the beginnings of movable type and the reaction to that. In 1470 was the first call for censorship in Italy, where uh, someone demanded that the Pope had to do something about these horrible translations coming out and demanded the, the, the appointment of a censor. The person wasn't demanding that. The person was demanding an editor and a publisher, and the institutions that we created eventually in print to try to deal with quality and authority and reliability. And now we see ourselves in an utterly different time. The scale is completely different. The speed is different. And the institutions we had are inadequate to those tasks. But we haven't invented the new institutions yet. So the first reflex in Europe especially is to regulate. And that surely government can find a way to control this beast. Whereas in America, the reflex is a bit more libertarian, especially in Silicon Valley, based on the fact that we have a First Amendment and we believe in those freedoms. And so that causes, I think, a clash of worldviews here. But I think that both are wrong in that it's going to take time for us to develop the norms and standards and institutions we need to make the best of this incredibly wonderful institution we now have in the Internet. Could you break down also how freedom of expression laws collide with the current demands to stop the spread of disinformation or harmful but legal speech in the U.S. and EU today? I get very, very nervous about government interference in speech at any level. And to be clear, I'm not a libertarian. I'm a Joe Biden Democrat. But I think that when government presumes to be the arbiter of speech in any way, it is a power in their hands that will inevitably corrupt. And so I worry when I see government saying that there should be someone in or outside government to decree what is true or false and that that which is false should be taken down. 
that's a, clearly an impossible task. And I think we look at the early regulation in Europe and we see this coming out. In the Leistungsschutzrecht in Germany, which is the ancillary copyright, we saw major publishers, Springer and Burda, uh, lobbying to get the government to repress the power of the platforms against their own companies. In the right to be forgotten, we see ironically that the court gave Google more power, even though the effort was to give them less power, for now Google decides what we shall remember. In fake news laws in France, I see the huge danger of anointing someone to decide what is official truth. In the legal but harmful regulation in the UK that's coming forward, uh, they've changed the language a bit, but the argument still is that companies will be forced to take down not only illegal speech, and that phrase itself is troubling when you think about it, that some speech can be illegal, but also to take down legal but harmful speech. Not seeing the paradox here that, of course, if the government decrees something is harmful and must be taken down, it is de facto, de jure, illegal. And so I think what we see in general here is a moral panic occurring that blames our troubles on the internet and thinks that government can come in and fix it. And this moral panic is being fueled in great measure by our colleagues in media. And we have to recognize the competitive landscape here where media companies often try to use their clout with government to beat down their competitors. We saw this when print faced its very first competitor in radio. We saw it with uh, media and television. And we see it again with media and the internet. Public pressure is, though maybe you would argue that it's, it's not public pressure, it's media pressure. But pressure certainly is mounting to adopt internet regulation rules, uh, especially in the, in the wake of events like Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen's revelations. Do you think this will amount to changes? Oh, I think there will be changes, and I think they'll be damaging, looking at the regulation we have. I had a debate with my own congressman here who is trying to um, modify Section 230. And for the background, Section 230 gives platforms both a sword and a shield to enable a public conversation. Those platforms, by the way, include newspapers and magazines and TV stations, not just big tech companies, such that they are free to moderate the speech that occurs in those platforms, but they're not liable for others' speech there. Because if they were liable, they would shut off the conversation that the internet enables. And, and so Section 230 to me is a very, very important protector of the public conversation in the United States. And in this moral panic to blame the internet for all of our problems, people are focusing on Section 230 as if it gives a privilege to platforms we must get rid of because they're too big and they're too rich. And we've got to do something about these competitors to newspapers. And that's what's happening right now. And I think that the result will be an impingement on our freedom of expression in the United States. What I think is really interesting about this debate is that it, it is so rooted in values and principles and freedom of expression. And one of the things that's constantly cited when, when discussions of the transatlantic relationship arise are common values. You were part of the transatlantic high-level working group on content moderation online and freedom of expression featuring American and, and European experts. When the discussion came around to common values on this issue, where were the agreements? Where were the disagreements? So the first point is that we came to this notion that we need evidence, data, research. And that fed a lot of what then proceeded in our deliberations. We saw the difference in the belief, call it, if you will, fanatical belief in free speech in the United States versus in Europe, the priority given to privacy and such that we knew coming in. 
we looked at the effectiveness of the regulation to date, like the hate speech law in, in Germany, Nestegay. And, and so we, we started with the base of a reality check. And then where we went with that was also informed by real efforts. There's a, there's a regulator uh, in France who's brilliant, who spent six months embedded in Facebook to see what regulation of Facebook would look like, obviously with the cooperation of Facebook. His recommendation, which informed a lot of our thinking, was that the government shouldn't be trying to tell all the platforms at once what to do because the platforms are different, their communities are different, but that there was a lack of trust, a lack of trust in the internet, a lack of trust in government, a lack of trust in media. The way to deal with that was more empirical evidence and data and research. So we, we asked as a group, how do we get that? And the argument was, in the end, that trust will come through transparency, and that if we get the platforms to hand over more data to researchers so we can understand what the impact is, so we can work together as we, as we face new challenges like a pandemic in a more flexible, fluid way involving multi-stakeholders, we'll be better off. But I think that, that what happened was by starting with this value of empirical data, evidence, and research that informed not only our process as we went through and understood it, but also our recommendations in the end. That's what the world needs more of. So perhaps not. The, the report wasn't necessarily founded on these common values, but it was built on a cooperation around research and data and, and sharing the information that you have. So there is, I guess, the well-known difference between the U.S. and EU attitudes toward free speech. But you don't see that basically as, as a rift when it comes to this kind of legislation. No, I think it's necessary to, to recognize it because the, the flag that we will salute here in the United States will get somewhat saluted in Europe. Obviously, Europe's in favor of free speech, not trying to say anything different, but there is a different prioritization there that we have to deal with. And the other fascinating thing that occurs is you, you see the emphasis on privacy in Europe, on Datenschutz in Germany, sometimes conflicting with the desire to control the platforms because to control the platforms, you want to get data. Well, that data might reveal personal details. So the platforms become very nervous about saying, well, on the one hand, you're telling us we can't release this data in any way because of privacy. And yet, on the other hand, you're telling us we must. And so it comes into a conflict, not just in our transatlantic working group, but also in real life. So going to that report then, uh, which I think laid out a pretty clear roadmap for online content moderation, could you describe a little bit of the structure that was proposed and, and basically what would a properly functioning internet regulation regime look like? I'm the brother of a Presbyterian minister, so, so I hear the word covenant often. And I use that word. They don't, but I do. And what I think we need is for the companies to put forth a covenant of mutual obligation. And one thing that came out in the meetings, I was there in the room with the technology guy in, in our meetings and said something about community standards. And this technology person was honest enough to say, it's not community standards. These are the standards the company imposes upon the users, and there are no standards imposed upon the company. So I would hope for a warrant, a covenant that these companies make with their users and with the public that says, here's what you can count on us for, and here's what you can be held accountable for. In the United States, the Federal Trade Commission does not decree how you should make a pen and how long it should last. But if you say this pen is going to last for five years and it doesn't, well, we're going to come after you for fraud. The essence of this is to say that each platform can be different. Each platform can be held to account thus for different standards because they are different in their nature and their communities and what they want. So I think that was part of the idea. All right. So then within that, now we come to what does come out of the report, which is really 
three legs to the stool. The first is that there needs to be a transparency of data to inform research. And that might be a regulator. It might not be. It might be a different kind of organization, but it's not saying that government performs that research. It says that researchers are able to do this at universities around the world. Obviously, there need to be standards about how this data comes out, protection of privacy, other things that matter. But we need to be able to hold the platforms accountable. Accountable to what? Accountable to the promises they make, accountable to standards that, is, that are set in society or set by regulators or legislation, accountable to their own employees and their users. Uh, to do that, we need data so we can get research so we can do that. Second, what we forced the platforms to do is to act in an extrajudicial way to enforce standards. And, and so if you look at Netzdege in Germany or at similar legislation coming up elsewhere in Europe, you see that the platform is forced to take down bad speech, let's just call it that, within an X number of hours or else it will pay penalties. So what, what happens is the fear in that case, of course, is that the platform is going to be overprotective of themselves and their liability and take down too much speech. So what if we had e-courts, especially trained jurists with, with speeded up processes so that an appeal could be made in public as it should occur with due process in a court about speech that is taken down. And I, and I think that's very, very interesting. That would, it would necessarily be national courts, I think, though perhaps in the EU you could have an EU-wide court because the laws and the standards are gonna be different. The third leg of the stool, a little bit less developed, I think, in the report than others, is whether there are social media councils, whether there are ways uh, for these various parties to create their organizations to get together and discuss these challenges in the ways that I mentioned earlier and try to use the data and use the research to come up with recommendations about how they behave. One of the things that came up in the report was the idea that the, the issue here is not necessarily speech, but it's reach. When it comes to the, the spread of this information. One of the things that I noticed was that Germany's Nets DG law was going after bigger networks. So networks with 2 million users. And I was wondering if, if you agree with, with that kind of approach or if your views have changed, should rules like these, perhaps the stool that you just described with the three legs, should those apply to platforms with a certain number of users or perhaps even users on those platforms with a certain amount of reach? Scale is our friend and our enemy. Scale is our friend in the sense that now that anyone who's connected to the internet can speak, we end up with such wonderful new institutions as Black Lives Matter and Me Too, and anyone can speak. So scale is our friend in the sense that it enables far more people to speak around the old gatekeepers. Scale is our enemy is in the sense that trying to find what's good in that speech trying to then regulate that in some way, if the desire is there, is very much more difficult. And so the presumption is made that we have to go after the big actors, thus Facebook and Twitter. Also, the current mood made by media is to be anti those big American companies. But there's a problem there, which is that, the, that we know well that the really most malign actors, the worst of them, will go find their dark places far away from these big platforms. And yes, the argument is made that you can have great influence on people on Facebook and Twitter, and that's why we should start there. But I don't think we have the data and research to really necessarily know how much influence they have. How much did people come to the platforms with their own beliefs? Were they made into haters? So in the end, it's primarily convenient to go after the big guys. 
Now, the other issue on the other side of this is regulatory capture, that the small guys, the well-meaning small guys, the, the people we want to create competition to the big guys are greatly inconvenienced by a lot of this regulation and can't afford the affordances that are put upon them. And so that hurts them. At the same time, if we don't go after the little guys, then we don't go after some of these dark places. This becomes a real issue in the sense that Facebook, Twitter, Google, TikTok, and so on, they can afford regulation. And new startups cannot. When we were talking to young Americans and Europeans about what they wanted to know, they they said uh, regulating online speech. And they targeted the platforms, which it seems like that's maybe not the single target or the, the best target in this option. Are you surprised or not surprised that that's what young people think is the priority here? Journalism becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We decide upon our agendas. We deny that we have them. We argue that we're objective or impartial, but the truth is we're not. That is a lack of transparency on our part. I started a new program at the school with a colleague that we now call Engagement Journalism, which tries every day to grapple with this, with journalism's own worldview and own view. I think it's important to note that if you look at the coverage of the internet in the last five years, it's switched on a dime from utopian to dystopian. A researcher named Neerit Weisblatt wrote a book called The Tech Clash, in which she did a lot of research looking at media coverage of the internet, and it switched in 2016, guess what? The election of Donald Trump. I'll put my own view on this, which is that media needed somebody else to blame for what had happened in the United States, and they wanted to blame the platforms. So no, it's not surprising that you would start to see polls, uh, which themselves are self-fulfilling entities that, uh, in, the, in, the, in the words of James Carey, preempt the conversation they are meant to measure. So you see media companies telling people the internet is bad, then asking people, is the internet bad? And they uh, act surprised when the answer comes back, yes, the internet is bad. It's self-fulfilling. What would the internet look like in your estimation if democratic governments failed to come together on this and regulate this in a way that's based on their values? First, it's important to say regulation also means protection of rights. And that includes protections of rights of speech. It includes the protection of rights of the companies. They have rights too. We see this future right around us. We see it in China. We see a government that tries to control speech at an everyday level, government that tries to control the companies government that controls the company's owners, that does so for an official vision of truth, we can see exactly that internet being built there. We see it being built in Russia. And those are two easy malign actors to look at and to be worried about. But I see too many parallels with what's happening in those countries with what I see happening elsewhere. The UK's legal but harmful speech dictum might as well have come out of a religious order in Iran. And so it's very important to see regulation not as a mechanism to batten down speech to disadvantage the technology companies. Because if we end up there, then what we do in turn is disadvantage the public. I'll give you an example. Just before we spoke, Twitter decided that they wanted to attack harassment by limiting uh, media, that is to say photos and videos and such of people, and ruling that permission is needed for those things to stay on Twitter. Well, okay, I can understand the uh, motive there, and I understand the desire of a platform to make a statement that it can enforce at scale, but what would have happened if one of the policemen who murdered George Floyd in the United States 
went to Twitter and said, take this down because I didn't get permission. Well, at the same time, Facebook is considering internal regulation, private regulation, to forbid putting up uh, or displaying, identifying any, anything that would identify someone's address. Again, I know the reason for that because of harassment. What if George Floyd had been murdered on his front driveway? What if the video had been taken down by the algorithm because of that? Uh, what if we change Section 230 such that the platforms are, are far more liable? Would the young woman who videotaped George Floyd even been able to, to post it anywhere? Would we know what happened? These are the things that bespeak a new era for information in society, where it's not controlled by simple gatekeepers and media, but that everyone can record, all witnesses can share, and we need a structure that enables that. But at the same time, we have this pressure to say, we have to get rid of bad speech. And when we do that, we can't know how much good, important, productive, valuable, vital speech we also cut off. From the U.S. perspective of Jeff Jarvis, we now go back to Europe to hear more about both the intricacies of content moderation, particularly in Germany, but also the bigger picture of platform regulation and the goals of policies addressing communication online and the companies that enable it and profit from it. Platform regulation, to me, is about corporate accountability and corporate transparency. Those are things that in other industries are standard. They have been around for years, if not decades that companies need to adhere to certain laws, but they also need to adhere to certain basic laws that, that apply to everyone in every company. But there's also like specialized guidelines, legal rules for certain industries, be it drug manufacturers, the chemical industry, the food industry, manufacturing industry, it doesn't matter. There are specific sets of rules regarding corporate accountability, regarding corporate transparency, and companies need to follow that. My name is Julian Jawasch from Stiftung Neue Verantwortung, SNV where I work as a project director on matters relating to platform regulation and um, disinformation. And this is what I understand on a platform regulation that's been coming up in the past five, six, seven years mostly, where under the heading of, of platform regulation, there's a debate about what accountability do we expect from these tech companies? What type of transparency do we as a society, but also for researchers and regulators, expect of these companies? What type of rules do these companies need to comply with? I asked Julian about the German approach to content moderation through the NetzDG or Network Enforcement Act. Germany is a good example for this platform regulation because it's a country that has introduced some national level laws regarding platforms and transparency and, and content moderation. Very, very basically, the important thing to remember is that whatever applies regarding illegal content, whatever applies to you and me as persons or, or other companies also applies to tech companies. So if, if you or I incite violence with an expression of ours, be it a video or in public or whatever, then we can be held accountable for that. And the same goes for big tech platforms. The problem was the enforcement. And the problem was that these rules existed, but it was hard for users and for regulators to enforce these rules. And that's why Germany came up with this idea of a Network Enforcement Act, also known as the German acronym NetzDG, where the German government basically said, okay, we have all these rules. We have all these rules around potentially illegal content, for example, incitement to violence, for example, denial of the Holocaust, which is illegal in, in Germany. And we just have to make sure that there's good mechanisms of enforcement at these platforms. So we will require these platforms to take down such content in a certain period of time. 
weaknesses of the NetCG approach? I think the strength of the NetCG is the transparency reporting and the weakness is the content removal deadlines. I think the, the strength and the, of the transparency reports is that it's cutting across platforms, across time. It's more structural. It's not confined to individual pieces of content that someone needs to make a judgment on. So it really cuts much more to the business practices of a platform on how they go about content moderation, how they go about content removal. And I think the weakness of the content removal deadlines of these very strict 24 hours or in some cases a little bit longer deadlines is that you force the platform's hand and you force the decision of what is illegal and not illegal into the platform's hands. Whereas usually that decision is not left to a private entity, but it's left to the judicial system. And I think this is a weakness that it stems probably from the sheer scale and magnitude of these big platforms where you just, with the judicial system as it stands, you, you can't just deal with these enormous scale of comments and contents that is out there. Is there a moment that you remember when you first realized that content moderation on social media might not be functioning properly, that there might be a huge problem brewing here? Prime example that was in the media of that being the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But I think more recently, the content moderation, not scandal, but realization maybe by, by a lot of people where it became so abundantly and obviously clear to everyone all around the world that what happens online has profound effects on, on how we get informed is the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it brought out all the complexities and all the issues surrounding content moderation. It showed very clearly that there's an actual danger that stems from failed content moderation, from content moderation that fails to deal with disinformation, that fails to take into account how users use services and, and how services maybe also can help users find reliable information. But it also shows how complex the problem is and that it's not just a, a technical platform issue. It's not about saying, oh, this platform does more than, uh, than that platform on COVID disinformation, or this platform is better at deleting posts or ads on, on supposed miracle cures. It's about also dealing with the fluctuating, the changing question of what is even accurate information that we can surface, like especially for a topic like COVID-19, where the scientific evidence is being added onto all the time and where there's changing scientific uh, evidence, it's not a straightforward legal issue to define this is what a platform needs to do, this is what a platform shouldn't do. But there needs to be a, a framework in which platforms can act that is democratically legitimized and developed to make sure that these changing attitudes, these changing approaches, these changing requirements for content moderation are being taken into account. And I think the debates in Germany around NetCG, for example, started when a lot of hatred and vitriol was directed online against refugees five, six, seven years ago. And it became clear that this is something that needed to be contained. How has this attention changed perceptions or does it perhaps reflect changing perceptions about the responsibilities that these companies have? And what role governments play in this issue when it comes to content moderation? I think there has been a change in how a lot of people and a lot of policymakers view platforms that is also reflected in legislative proposals and surveys as well. I think a couple of years ago, maybe a, a decade or a decade and a half ago, platforms were pretty much left to their own devices because they were seen as either neutral or actually a force for good. 
Like they could help people come together. They could help galvanize democratic activists in authoritarian regimes. They could help political groups formulate their opinions, which was and is true. But over time, it has also become clear that there's a downside to that, that there's a, a negative aspect to these types of connections being brokered in corporate, profit-maximizing, attention-seeking online environments. Some of them being stuff that we already talked about, disinformation, the spread of hate speech, the spread of misleading advertising, the abuse of private and, and personal data. And I think this has slowly, over time, slowly but surely led to this change that tech platforms are not viewed in an only positive light anymore. The Digital Services Act, the DSA, is currently under review at the EU level. It is a big approach to platform regulation as kind of the overarching thing here. But within that, there are certain parts that have to do with content moderation. Can you explain the relevant points of the DSA when it comes to content moderation? So when it comes to content moderation, the DSA pretty much continues the law of the land from previous European legislation on uh, the liability of platforms. So if you're a platform and you do content moderation, you're not liable for users' content, very basically speaking. And this was the same rule in the US and the, and the same rules that we had before the DSA, that only if you are being notified about a particular piece of content and you don't deal with it, then you're held liable. And, and this basic premise of content moderation in Europe will likely remain unchanged in the DSA. That was never really a big point of discussion. What is added now to content moderation, which, which has not been in place before, or not in this level of detail, let's put it that way, is the notice and action mechanism. So the idea that a user, if you or I are on a big platform and we want to report a certain piece of content because we think it's illegal and we want to notify the platform of it, that there's now more detailed, more explicit mechanisms to report that um, than there were before. And I think that is one of the key things and, and that is much more the bone of contention how you deal with this notice and action mechanism, what that actually entails for the platforms, for the consumers, for the regulators, then the, the very, very basic unchanged liability points around content moderation. In an article you wrote a few years ago with the Institut Montaigne, you actually touch upon a lot of the points you were just going over when it comes to dealing with platforms, namely auditing social media platforms, auditing, auditing social media companies to open up their, their data to outside view. But another was focusing on inauthentic behavior rather than false content. Could you elaborate a little more on what focusing on in, inauthentic behavior would look like? Is that kind of verifying users more strictly? It speaks to the same idea that I was, that I was trying to, to get at before. Instead of looking at individual pieces of content, of which there are million or billions of pieces uh, every day, you can look at behavior of certain accounts. That, I think, needs to be embedded in or, or prefaced with the point that this is mostly a debate that has happened within the disinformation community. I think it can be applied to other discussions as well, but it is a point in the disinformation research sphere where you say, don't just look at the content, also look at the actor who the, the piece of content is coming from, and look at the behavior, the ABC of disinformation, so actor, behavior, and content. Uh, you can even add a D for distribution, which was uh, suggested by some expert. And then you can make a decision of remove it, not amplify it, not recommend it to people. 
don't just have a short-sighted focus on on individual pieces of content, but look at the broader, more structural system design of of where this is happening. Underneath all of this 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 bigger discussion about what means to 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 bring forward to deal with platforms is, is kind of a values question, and Germany in particular has freedom of expression laws that I think Americans would find too strict and perhaps in the other way around, a lot of Europeans would find U.S. rules about freedom of expression a little too lax. So when it comes to all of these legal considerations about what to do with content online and what to do with the platforms that are, that are spreading this content, how does this clash with uh, freedom of expression, with hu- the human rights side of things? I do think there are differences in how Europeans and Americans and U.S. legal doctrine and, and European legal doctrine views freedom of expression, but I also wouldn't overemphasize that. And the reason why I say that is because the basic premise is, to me, very similar. And this is a, in both countries or regions is a very high regard for freedom of expression and, and freedom of the press. I think the difference comes in the nuance where what potential limitations because of other rights other human rights, fundamental rights are there. And I think in the US, maybe there are not a lot of restrictions. Whereas in Germany, some other basic fundamental rights um, have to be considered when you when you talk about freedom of expression. On your basic point, I, I do see a difference. I'm not sure that for the beta-bound platform regulation, the differences are, are so vast that they can't be bridged. There are in in both regions of the world, in in both the U.S. and the EU, there are different interpretations of of how far freedom of expression, freedom of speech should go. But I think there's also a consensus that there are limits and there's a consensus that that a right to amplification, this so-called freedom to reach, is not actually anywhere in legal doctrine or laid down in in the law. And lastly, on the the consideration of, of, of human rights, because that's a term that you mentioned as well. I do think it's important to remember that freedom of expression means that I have the right to my own opinion and to express my own opinion, but it also means that I have a right to form my own opinion and seek and and receive information that helps me form my opinion and helps me later on express it. My freedom of expression to, to receive and seek information can be severely limited by abundant disinformation, by me being targeted by hateful languages, language online, so that I, I'm afraid to even research different opinions or or express myself. With the DSA, do you see this as a decisive moment to secure democratic values for the internet, where if if powerful players like the EU and the United States aren't able to reform these rules, making them more democratic, more transparent for, for platform regulation? Is there an opportunity that the internet could move in the other direction, dominated by more um, authoritarian forces? The DSA, maybe also some of the discussions that are being had in the U.S., uh, even though it's unclear where they go in Congress, those are attempts to include the public in policymaking debates that shape how millions or billions of people in these respective uh, regions of the world use the internet, use big platforms, instead of leaving that solely to corporate uh, decision makers. And I think that alone is the step that needs to be emphasized and applauded. I think some of the rules in the DSA are, are really 
good and and promising i i think some of them will probably turn out to need improvement and and aren't great or might not turn out to be that helpful but the point is it's not being left solely to platforms to decide how they work and and how they report how open they are to research how open they are to to explain their business practices and i think that to me is the key it's a public scrutiny a, a collaborative effort that is more open than the closed corporate decision making that had been uh, been taking place before so maybe that that doesn't quite answer the what if scenario like is there a scenario where the dsa fails and then platforms take over or stay in power or authoritarian re regimes make the rules i'm not sure I, i this is hard for me to say but i think the flip side becomes the the crucial point that this is an opportunity for democratically legitimized rulemaking for big platforms and that is something that we should take the opportunity to to actually do That's it for this episode of Bridging the Atlantic. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to bringing you our next episode on transatlantic security, and in particular, European defense policy, soon. A special thanks to my guests on this episode, Julian Yarish, Jeff Jarvis, and Yannick Gut for joining me and for the fascinating conversations. I would also like to thank my colleagues, Daniela Medina-Rojas of the Bertelsmann Foundation North America and Lila Fetich of the Bertelsmann Stiftung for guiding me behind the scenes through this topic. If you want more transatlantic tech policy analysis, then head over to bfna.org and sign up for Daniela's quarterly transatlantic technology newsletter called Hidden Layers, which you will find under the Digital World category. Bridging the Atlantic is a production of the Bertelsmann Foundation North America in Washington, D.C. and Brussels-based Are We Europe? Check out the Bertelsmann Foundation's work on transatlantic relations covering democracy, politics and society, future leadership, and our digital world at bfna.org. RV Europe's library of magazines, podcasts, and more can be found at rveurope.com. Bridging the Atlantic is edited and produced by Stefano Montali and written and produced by me, Nate Christ. Hey, Stefano here again. If you enjoyed that episode, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts by simply searching Bridging the Atlantic. Episodes one and two are already over there, and the rest will be released over the coming months. Until next time.